We're in Psalm 32. And uh, this is, uh, I was at the beach with a couple friends yesterday, and I made the statement that Psalm 32 is like my favorite chapter in the Bible, and they all just were like, whoa. <laughs> I may have spoke too soon, but honestly, my favorite, my favorite chapter in the Bible changes from week to week or from month to month because God's word is active and alive. And depending on what I'm reading, what I'm studying, how the Lord is ministering to me, those become my favorite chapters in the Bible, right? That's what's amazing about God's word is it's alive and active and it's ministering to us. And it's fun about Sunday morning is that the Holy Spirit and our planning and preparing as far as what book we're going to go through, what series we're going to teach, the, like we are praying and asking the Holy Spirit to guide us 100%. And I love that. I love marching through books in the Bible or chapters in a book in the Bible and just resting in the fact that it's the Holy Spirit that we're trusting is leading us to speak those words, whether we've heard them before, whether we've read them a hundred times, but today Psalm 32 is fresh and the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us through Psalm 32. I will say that Psalm 32 is one of my favorites though because it means so much to me when I first became a Christian it was a psalm that really helped teach me what it means to confess. And more than that, which was great and super helpful, and I practiced the, the discipline of confession daily before the Lord, it's also taught me how secure I am knowing that I am forgiven. And that is just, as a Christian, that is one of the most foundational, restful, securing, comforting thoughts is that we are forgiven that our sin has been dealt with. The title of this morning's sermon is Happy Are the Forgiven. And this psalm is a call for sinners to return to God and enjoy his forever forgiveness today. Now we read in the superscription, which is the little title below the given title and the chapter number, that this psalm is a masculine of David. Now, this superscription gives us two things that are really helpful for us to actually understand what Psalm 32 is saying. The first thing it gives us is that it's a masculine. And a masculine is a psalm of understanding. It's a type of psalm that we see in the Psalter. So, a psalm of understanding or a psalm of wisdom. And its purpose is to share wisdom for good living. We also see in the superscription that the author of this is King David who we have been able to get pretty familiar with because he has written most of the Psalms or the majority of the Psalms that we have been studying through our series in the first book of the Psalter. And although we have been catching up on his story, recapping his story, talking about his story quite often, I still believe it is very important for us to continue to recap on his story because his story helps us understand or at least gives us the right lens to actually look at this Psalm to know where he's going with it to understand his background and why he is passionate about teaching men and women, people of God, what it means to confess sin, to enjoy God's forgiveness. So let me recap on David's life. Now, if you're not familiar with David, David was a very gifted and successful individual. I mean, this guy, he was a great songwriter, a great poet we've been seeing in the Psalms. He was known as a fearless and skilled warrior, he fought many battles, united the tribes of Israel. He expanded the empire. One of his most famous scenes in his historic account is when he fought the giant Goliath. He had a sling, five smooth stones. He's a young man, and this, the, the nation of Israel is petrified to even face this giant to defeat the Philistines. David, this young shepherd, goes down with a sling and slays this giant. 
I mean, as far as we can see in Scripture, he was beast mode most of the time. One of his most notable attributes was his unwavering faith and his steadfast love for God. God literally called him a man after God's own heart in 2 Samuel 13, 14. David was one of the guys that you would actually look up to and you would try to model your life after because he kind of was the whole package. His godliness being one of the most admirable things that we look at. And when David spoke, the nation of Israel listened up. But David's also um, known for some pretty spectacular failures that are recorded in the Bible. Most notably, his adulterous relationship with a woman named Bathsheba. And I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with the story, but I'll go ahead and share it again. The story goes that David was resting from battle. He was walking along his rooftop on the palace, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. We read that he lusts after her. He brings her to his castle. They commit adultery. She becomes pregnant. He cooks up a scheme to try to cover up his sin. That doesn't work. David then arranges for this woman's husband, whose name is Uriah, to be killed. And he succeeds. He then makes this woman his wife, all in an attempt to cover and conceal his sin. Now, you read a story like that, or you look at an account of a man like that reputation, and you say, what a scumbag, right? Men spend lifetimes building reputations, only to be torn down by a mistake like that. Now, roughly a year later, God sends a prophet, Nathan, to confront David in his sin. So David, this is like 365 days, roughly, approximately, thinking he's gotten away with his sin. God confronts him by sending his prophet. Nathan shows up to speak with David, and he shares a story with David. And this story has always been, like, very cutting to me. As he says, there's two men, a rich man and a, and a, a poor man. Now, the rich man, he had plenty of wealth, lots of resources, livestock. I mean, he was just well off. But this poor man, all he had was one lamb. And we read that this one lamb was so important to him. He loved this lamb. We read that he would feed it from his table, that he would let it sleep in his arms, that he treated this lamb like it was one of his kids. It was clear in the story that this man just loved this little lamb because it's all he had. Now the story goes, one day the rich man has a guest stop by, and as guests stop by, the host is meant to feed them, entertain them, and take care of them. Well, this rich man doesn't feel like he wants to actually do that with his own resources. So he sees this poor man lamb across the field. He takes that one little lamb that he has, he slaughters it, and he feeds it to his guest. Now when David hears this story, he is outraged. He was like, how dare this man do this? This man deserves to die. This man deserves to pay this poor man four times as much as he's taken from him. And Nathan the prophet looks at David and says, you are the man. You are the man. And we read that David crumbles. And the first thing out of David's mouth that's actually recorded in 2 Samuel 12, 13 is, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, sometime after this rebuke, David went on to write a prayer of confession concerning this sin. He writes it in Psalm 51. I want to read a chunk of this to you because it really helps set the background of the story. The superscription of this psalm, Psalm 51, says this, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is his prayer of confession. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. Lastly, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This is a beautiful prayer. David confesses and repents of his sin, and he completely throws himself at the mercy of God. And if we read further in David's story, we know that God showed him mercy, not because of David and who he was. We read because of God's steadfast love, he showed David's mercy, David mercy. This is an epic story of God's grace, right? This isn't about David, this is about God. God's grace coming in. And you know what? Every one of our stories is that, an epic story of God's grace. Because we know what we've been saved from, and we know how wonderful it is to know that God showed and shared grace with us so that we might be saved. Now, Psalm 51 verse 13 is where I want to draw your attention because David makes a series of requests in this prayer. He requests for God to have mercy, to blot out his sins, to wash him, to heal him, to renew his spirit, and to return the joy of his salvation. But then in verse 13, he doesn't have a request. He makes a promise to God. He promises God if he answers his prayer, then he will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And by God's grace, David experienced that joy that comes with forgiveness. And in Psalm 32, our psalm this morning, it's believed to be a direct result of God's promise to go and teach sinners how to return to God. So let's consider it together now. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now the psalmist opens with a beatitude. Um, I don't know if you guys grew up in the church. I had the blessing of growing up in the church. And in children's ministry, my teacher taught me that a beatitude was an attitude that should be. A beatitude is an attitude that should be. As a kid, I still was confused by that answer. What does that even mean? But there's two parts to a beatitude. Number one, there's an action that produces an attitude. An action and an attitude. The psalmist is saying here, if you are forgiven, which is the action, then you are happy, which is the attitude. Now, interestingly enough, Psalm 32 is one of two psalms that begin with a beatitude. You remember the first psalm, Psalm 1, it opens with, blessed be the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked, sit in the seat of the scornful, stand in the way of the sinner. Essentially saying, happy are the holy, 
The person who does not live like the wicked, but keeps their mind in life and step with the Lord and the law of the Lord. Now, our psalm today tells us happy are the unholy, but the ones who are actually forgiven. So one is happy are the ones who obey. This one is happy are the ones who disobey, yet are forgiven by God's grace. Now, I don't know about you, but this psalm actually resonates more with me because I, re- I recognize how happy I am to know that I am forgiven and how hard it is for me to actually walk as far as in the law of the Lord. Now, the word blessed is better translated happy or joyful. The reason for that is because the author is speaking specifically about the immediate feeling that we would get or relief that comes when someone's debt has been cleared or someone's sin has been forgiven. Similar to this feeling, a a convicted criminal would feel this if they've been accused of a crime, sentenced to life in prison, but suddenly is released and the charges are dropped and they have been pardoned. Now, you would imagine that that person would feel joy, would feel happiness, would have the feeling of jubilee, or at least they should. The psalmist is saying that the person that has been pardoned from their sin, they will without question experience happiness. And he's speaking from experience. Now, verses one and two are practically saying the same thing here, but there are some nuances to the word that is used when the psalmist is describing both sin and describing forgiveness. And I think they're worth considering. So let's first look at the word sin or the words of sin that he uses. He uses transgression, sin, and iniquity in verse one and the latter half of two. Now, transgression, it means to cross the line. To transgress is to cross the line. It means to switch sides or no longer before, but actually now position yourself against. So to transgress is to move from ally to enemy. It's rebelling against God. The word sin, I'm sure you've heard this before, is missing the mark. Another one I heard in children's ministry. They always use the archery example of missing the mark. Sin means to miss the mark. Target shooting. God has set a mark or a goal. There is a direction God wants us to go. And when we miss that or we intentionally deviate from that, we are missing that mark. We are sinning against God and his word. And the third word he uses is iniquity. And this word is a little more interesting. It means to twist or to distort. It's what, it's what, what it means is taking what is good and distorting it, tainting it, taking it out of its good or original context. These are the words used to describe what we do when we sin against God. And they are helpful because they really articulate the seriousness of sin, right? They really shed light on actually what sin is, which is important if the goal is to lead others to seek forgiveness. Now, in Christianity today, I think when we talk about sin, there is a temptation to downplay it. There's a temptation to make sin seem less than. We use words that make it seem less serious like, I messed up, or I made a mistake, or I slipped, or I stumbled. We're talking about our own shortcomings. We're talking about our own sin before God. All those can be used to describe what it means to sin or to mess up or to to rebel against God. But I think what happens with those words is it, it makes sin sound so accidental. It makes sin sound less severe. There's a temptation to for us to make our sin sound less severe, which can make it sound, again, accidental. Well, you know what? Sin, sin is never that. It's never accidental. It's never less severe. 
when we sin, as far as God sees it, it is rebellion against him. There are varying degrees of sin as far as if I commit murder, that's different than me telling a lie. But as far as God sees sin, as far as God sees us messing up, or as far as God looking at us and seeing us as unrighteous, it's one sin over a thousand sins. If you sin, you are a sinner, and God sees it as much. Now, God makes this abundantly clear in his word. Uh, we have a clear teaching of this in James chapter 1, talking about how sin, we are responsible for it, and sin is intentional. Chapter 1, verse 14 in James, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What James is saying is it's our twisted desires that lead us to transgress, to cross the line, and to sin against our holy God. When we sin against God, we are positioning ourselves against him. We are intentionally aiming away from his target, and normally we're aiming towards our own created target. We are taking God's good things out of good context and making them ugly, hurtful, damaging, and oftentimes self-serving. Sin is serious. When we sin, it is serious. So serious that once committed, the consequence of sin is death. Romans 6, 23 tells us that for the wages of sin is death. And that is really bad news because every one of us has crossed that line, right? Every single one of us have positioned ourselves against God at some point in our life. We have all fallen short, Romans 3, 23 tells us. And when you come to that realization that, oh my goodness, I have sinned against a holy God. When you come to the position you recognize that you are deserving of judgment for your sin and that there is a place of judgment called hell that all who sin against God rightfully go. When you get there in your mind, when you understand that through the revealing of the Holy Spirit, sorrow and despair sink in. Joy is absent when you're recognizing that you're a sinner. Sin is serious. John Bunyan wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress, and it's one of my favorite books, just like it's one of my favorite chapters. <laughs> but I mean that, okay? It really is one of my favorite books. I've read it a couple times. Um, it's a fictional allegory of the Christian life. If you haven't read it, oh my goodness, read it. It is an amazing book. It's so helpful and encouraging and just beautifully written. But in the beginning of the book, the main character, he has a name. His name is Graceless. And Graceless is walking around his house with this huge burden on his back. And I have the illustrated version too for my kids. And it's just this obnoxious, pointy, just super uncomfortable looking burden that he is like, has strapped to his back. His family can't see it, only he can see it. And this burden, it symbolizes his sin. And he just is reading this book, we understand it to be the Bible, but it's just called the book in the in Pilgrim's Progress, and he can't stop weeping and trembling. He is so upset because the book has been, he's been reading has made him aware of the burden on his back, which is the source of his sorrow. He doesn't know how to get rid of it. Everything he does, he can't figure out a way to get rid of this back. He can't take it off himself. His family tries to cheer him up, but to no avail. They try to put him to bed. They think he's sick, but all he does throughout the night is weep and sigh and one day he's walking out in the field and he runs into a character named Evangelist. And Evangelist asks him, why are you weeping? And this is what Graceless says. He says, sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die and after that to come to judgment. 
And I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor am I able to do the second. For I fear that this burden which is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave. This is the state of all mankind. Our sin is serious. And when you are confronted with the reality of your sin, the reality of judgment, the reality of the sorrow that comes when you know you are separated from God, and because of your sin will be eternally separated from God unless something saves you. The psalmist this morning offers hope. There is one thing that can revive happiness, and that is forgiveness. And it is available for all who call out for mercy. Now, what does it mean to be forgiven? The psalmist gives us two words and a phrase here. He says, forgiven, the person who is happy is forgiven, which is mean the lifting or the removing of error or wrong or the lifting or the removing of a burden. He uses the word covered, which means to put away forever or to conceal from sight. And he also uses the phrase not counted, which as the kids say, just doesn't count. Doesn't count. That sin does not count. In a nutshell, those who are forgiven have been, had their sins removed, had their sins covered, and have had their sins concealed, never to be seen again. Another word we use for this, this idea of being forgiven, is the idea of being justified. That we have been justified. That word means declared righteous by God. How is one justified, you ask? Thank you. Thank you for asking that. Romans 5 just gives us a wonderful explanation. Verse 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by, his, by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If you've placed your faith in Jesus and asked God to forgive you of your sins, you have been made holy. You have been made righteous. You have been reconciled. You are forgiven. That sorrow caused by sin, that hopelessness, is, is swapped out and switched for joy and security and peace because of what God has done for us. He has justified this. There is therefore no condemnation. There is no eternal judgment for those who are forgiven and are in Christ. This is the blessed assurance we have as they're forgiven. Now, in context, David is speaking to God's people, but specifically those whom are trying to conceal their sin. So this is men and women in the nation of Israel who are living in sin, foolishly thinking they will get away with what they've done, just like he was priorly thinking that he was going to get away with what he's done. So he begins to make his appeal for repentance by sharing his own story of unconfessed sin. We read about this in verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Now there are a few things to point out here. Number one, 
Unconfessed sin is unhealthy. Unconfessed sin is unhealthy. Now, like I mentioned earlier, scholars believe that between the time of David's committed adultery and murder and the time where Nathan actually confronted him and we read about David's confession, roughly 365 days had passed. There was a good chunk of time that David was experiencing the symptoms and the consequences of his sin, like we read about in Psalm 32, 3 through 4. He describes his physical state as this. His bones were wasted away. He was weak. The light of life was dim in him. That day and night he couldn't sleep. Lack of sleep, bad dreams. He was consumed with guilt, fear, and security. And he also describes that his strength dried up as by the heat of summer. We're not experiencing that right now. I don't know what's going on with summer right now. But we have experienced it out here. I've seen us all sweated out out here in the parking lot. But if you guys know anything about a hot day and being exhausted where you're exercising and you're quenched, you're dehydrated, that feeling of just like, I'm going to die, I need some water. David's explained that as he laid silent in his sin, this is what his body felt like. And this is what his spirit felt like. In other words, his unconfessed sin was sucking the life out of him. When we harbor sin in our life, it affects us. It really does. It's like an undressed wound that if it's not taken care of, it gets infected and it gets worse and worse and worse. Unconfessed sin is unhealthy and David is expressing this. The second thing we see is unconfessed sin brings God's discipline. All of these side effects or these symptoms that we're reading about here are from the Lord. In verse 4 it says, David says, your hand was heavy upon me. He's describing these afflictions as coming from the hand of the Lord. Now, a few verses down in Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9, God describes this discipline as a bit or a bridle that is used by him to help bring his children back to him. Let me read that for you, Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. God speaking, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with a bit and bridle or will not stay near you. This in context, God is talking about the person who he has to actually forcefully lead back to his side, who is wandering off in unconfessed sin or in sin. Now, what a terrifying thought to be under God's discipline. Like, I thought my dad was pretty bad. I mean, he loved me so much. He was a godly man. But still, as a child, I was fearful when I did something wrong and I knew that I was going to be disciplined by my dad. But to be disciplined by the creator of the universe That's a terrifying thought, naturally. But in this verse, there is more hope to be found than there is is fear, than there is frustration. Because God's discipline in our lives affirms a few blessed truths that we read throughout the Bible. And I want to name a few of these guys. I want to name a few of these to you now to help encourage you. Because God's discipline is, again, an affirming thing of his love. Number one, if you are being disciplined, then you know that God loves you. If you're being disciplined, then you know that God loves you. Hebrews 12, 6 says this, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Now, I couldn't help but when I was reading this passage to be reminded of my mom and dad faithfully telling me that when they disciplined me, it's because they loved me. Sure, they made mistakes, maybe did a little bit in anger. As a parent, I've made those mistakes before, but I try to do a really good job at telling my kids, listen, I'm doing this because I love you and I want to lead you in the ways of the Lord. 
Discipline doesn't satisfy anything that I have or want other than the fact that I just want you to be a kid, a kid who loves the Lord and obeys their parents. I want to see you thrive. When God disciplines us, it tells us of his fatherly love and fatherly care. Number two, if you're being disciplined by God, you know it is good for you. Hebrews 12, 10 through 13. Speaking of God, he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Verse 12, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. When God disciplines us, he does it for our good. If you're being disciplined by God, you are reminded then that he will never leave you. I've been asked the question, you know, like, does sin separate us from God? Does our sin separate us from God? And the answer to that question is a little complicated, but it's, it's a yes and it's a no. Yes, sin separates us from God, and no, sin separates us from God. See, outside of Christ, our sin absolutely separates us from God. Christ came to reconcile us to God through his life and his death and his resurrection to bring us back, to restore us into right relationship with the Lord. But without trusting in Christ, our sin has completely separated us from him. But if you are in Christ, meaning you have trusted him for salvation, the answer is no. Your sin does not separate you from God. And I think Paul answers this question better than I can. In chapter 8, verses 30, starting in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our sin may separate us from the blessings of God at times, but nothing can separate his, God's children from his love. Nothing can. In Christ, we are forever the Lord's. Verse five, the psalmist repents. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Now, in sharing his experience here, the psalmist gives us crucial steps in the process of repentance, which I think is just so helpful. He begins by first acknowledging his sin. He's acknowledging there is a problem, and then he exposes it. Now, this is helpful because sometimes one of, the, one of these two steps can happen in confession, or we leave out one of these two steps. Sometimes we can acknowledge sin, but never expose it, never actually bring it into the light for healing, for help, for accountability. 
or even confess it to God. And sometimes our sin is exposed without us even wanting to be exposed, but we never truly acknowledge it as sin. It's just we got caught in something and we're dealing with the consequences. When it comes to repentance, there must be a realization of wrongdoing and a willingness to bring it into the light before God and to ask for forgiveness. We have to bring our sin into light. We have to confess our sin to the Lord. We have to acknowledge that it is sin. Now we see the same pattern when it comes to salvation. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Acknowledge or believe in your heart, and then confess with your mouth, and you will be saved. Now, this reminds us that repentance and confession is not only something we do to become Christians. Repentance and confession is something that we constantly do as Christians. If you don't sin, then you don't need to confess. But the reality of it is, is that I believe that every single one of you sin, like myself, and every single one of us needs to confess that sin to the Lord and trust and throw ourselves at his mercy. 1 John 1, 8, verses 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, we must be a people who acknowledge our sins when we sin and confess them to the Lord. And that should be a rhythm of grace throughout our life because you know what? We all sin. It is a problem, but by God's grace and by God's mercy, he loves us and longs for us to come and repent and enjoy the joy of our salvation. Now notice that it is when we uncover our sin before the Lord that he is quick to take it and to cover it up from us. Our God is quick to forgive and he desires our holiness. After the psalmist shares a story of repentance, he offers up some urgent counsel in verse six. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Verse six is an urgent cry for his reader to confess sin before it's too late, which begs the question, when is it too late? When is it too late to confess our sins to God? When is, it the, when is the time that God cannot be found? And I believe the answer to that question is that time will be at judgment day. The time will God, that God will not be found will be on judgment day. The well of God's grace is deep and it's wide, but there will come a time when his grace will be out of reach for those who never asked for it. Later on in the New Testament, Jesus was asked if a few people would be saved. It would be a few or it would be many. And Luke 13, verse 23 records that conversation. And someone said to him, talking to Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. 
Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. The psalmist is pleading, don't wait till tomorrow. Confess to the Lord now. Now on the flip side, those who do offer a prayer of confession to God while he may be found, he says will receive mercy. Verse 6 again, the latter half of 6. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. The psalmist is saying that those who actually cry out to God, those who throw themselves at God's mercy and confess their sin, they will find God and they will be forgiven of their sins. He likens sin to rushing waters here. And what he's trying to say is that although the rushing waters of sin attempt to drown us and they barrage us and they keep coming and coming, what he's saying is they will not overtake you because God is faithful to save you and to forgive you because God is our hiding place, because God preserves the sinner. And in the midst of the congregation, he says, we are reminded of this salvation by the shouts of deliverance from the people of God. Now, this is one reason why I don't like doing church outside is because I can't hear you guys sing. And I'm so encouraged when I'm in the sanctuary, I'm hearing everyone sing shouts of praise. I mean, right now, I know you guys are singing, but all I can hear is Justin most of the time, which is totally fine. I love when Justin sings, okay? But isn't it like God to like have his people, his forgiven people, sing about the shouts of praise and forgiveness so that we all can mutually be built up and encouraged and reminded of that? That is an amazing thing that we as the body of Christ get to experience every Sunday morning. Super thankful for it. Psalm 32, let's wrap this up. In verse 8 and 9, we share a little bit about this already. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, and I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Now, here scholars are divided on who is talking here, who's actually speaking. Either this is David letting his people know that he will continue to teach them God's holy way and he'll watch over them as a king over his nation, or this is the voice of the Lord. We can't be sure. Either way, we can be sure that God is promising us to teach us how to live, and he will do it with his eye on us. Now, when you hear that phrase, his eye upon us, I don't know if you think about like, kind of like that parental, like, I don't trust you, so I'm gonna keep my eyes on you. That's what came to my mind. Like, God's just gonna keep his eye on us because just, we can't be trusted. Like, we're like those kids that just run off into the middle of the street every chance we get. But what's being said here, um, what's to be understood in this actual expression is that God is communicating not just this, like, I don't trust you, so I have to watch you, but more of this fatherly, tenderly care to say, I'm going to watch you because I love you and I want to protect you. It's kind of like how you look at your toddler if you've had kids. Like, Nolan, my kid Nolan, dude, I love that kid. I have to keep my eye on him, partly because I don't trust him, but also because I love him. And I really want to just keep my fatherly eye on him to make sure he's okay and he's safe. And that's how God looks at us. His discipline or his watchful eye is something that he is expressing his love for us in. And we should be extremely thankful for that. 
The psalmist concludes with revisiting the proverbial truth that is found in verse 1 and verse 10. But this time he points out the opposite end of the spectrum. He says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. He's saying, If happy are the forgiven, then sorrowful are the unforgiven. This is the last warning for those who are unwilling to offer up a prayer now in their time of need. And I think this is when the Holy Spirit offers up the prayer or the plea with the church, with his people, to offer up a prayer now in their time of need. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day that you can confess. I don't know where you all are at. I'm so thankful for all of you. I know probably 95% of you. And I'm just grateful to have you as brothers and sisters in Christ. But I will say this, only you know what's going on in your life. And the Holy Spirit knows and God knows. And if this is a psalm for you this morning, if you are living in sin and trying to hide it or conceal it, you're embarrassed or ashamed, the psalmist and I am pleading with you. There is so much joy and forgiveness to be found in Christ. Don't let your shame or your guilt or your fear stop you from enjoying all that God has for you. And that's for someone here today. But trust that there is joy and that God will forgive you. Lastly, Psalm 32 verse 11 ends this way. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the final exhortation. If happiness marks the man or woman who is forgiven, then here is one of the ways that we can express that happiness. That we can express the joy, that we can sing shouts of praise. And we're going to do that in a second here as a church. Psalm 32 is calling for sinners to return to God and enjoy his forgiveness. But ultimately, Psalm 32 is a song about Christ's victory over sin. Ultimately, Psalm 32 is a song about Christ's victory over sin because there is no greater news that produces such pure joy like the gospel of Jesus. There's nothing you can hear apart from you are forgiven by the God in heaven that will bring you such great joy. And the gospel tells us this morning, church, that Christ has paid for our sins on the cross, that Christ has satisfied the wrath of God, that Christ has died and defeated sin and death and rose again, that Christ has made us new, and now we, as God's redeemed people, can sing about it because we are forgiven. Amen? Let's pray.